Welcome to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm your host, Carl Morand. Today I'm talking to Dr. Mark Haas about his new book, The Clash of Ideologies, Middle Eastern Politics and American Security. The book examines how ideologies shape the perceptions and actions of governments, and specifically the impact this has on relations between the U.S. and the Middle East. Dr. Haas examines two key variables, ideological distance and ideological polarity, using case studies on the Syrian-Iranian alliance, Iran's ideological factions in the past decade, Turkey's post-Cold War foreign policies, and the U.S.-Saudi relationship. The book not only analyzes the ways in which ideologies impact foreign policy, but also tries to provide ways for improving foreign policy decisions in the future by employing strategies that use ideological analysis. Mark, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Uh, If you could, could you start out by talking about your background and what led up to you writing this book? Sure. I um, well, first of all, thanks, uh, thanks for having me. This is a wonderful opportunity. I uh, received my uh, doctorate in international relations from the University of Virginia in 2000, and in 2001, I was up at uh, Harvard uh, with a postdoc in international security, uh, postdoctoral fellowship, where we can uh, work on uh, turning our dissertations into books and. My book at that time, uh, my first book, was on the importance of ideologies in international relations, how they shape great powers' threat perceptions. And it was mostly historical, looking at various times uh, from the French Revolution, the wars of the French Revolution, until uh, the 1980s and the end of the Cold War. And then uh, 9-11 happened, and uh, President Bush... Uh, attributed, and many of his advisors attributed 9-11, as well as America's enmity to, with uh, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, various illiberal countries, to the profound ideological differences uh, dividing uh, these groups in these these countries. And as uh, the years went by, 2001, 2002, a new assertion began to gather steam that the best way to resolve America's conflicts with these groups and countries was to promote uh, liberalization, uh, promote liberal democracies in the Middle East and, and South Asia. And, and these, these statements that, the, that the, the cause of the conflicts was due to ideological differences and the best way to, to um, solve these disputes uh, was to promote liberalism uh, tied in with the book that I was, was writing. And and I looked at this in many ways. We were fighting a war based on, or several wars based on uh, these beliefs, but no one had really applied, tested the arguments or, or uh, into U.S. Middle Eastern relations. So I really wanted to know uh, and explore our large ideological differences, a key source of hostilities with America, um, and our strategies of trying to export particular ideological beliefs, is that an effective uh, strategy of international conflict resolution? So in many ways, this book, which grew out of my first one, but also uh, current events, was, was designed to, to test uh, key dimensions of the Bush administration's foreign policies in the region. Could you talk about uh, some of the research methods and the independent and dependent variables you looked at uh, as a part of your study? Sure. Uh, the book, uh, current book, has two uh, independent variables. Uh, 
The first one, which is the most important one, is what I call ideological distance. And and it looks at the the degree of ideological differences dividing states' leaders. So if, if, if current leaders profoundly disagree on um, methods of political representation, meaning uh, are they uh, support representative institutions or authoritarian ones? Do they, they support capitalist free market economies or, or social one, socialist ones, theocratic values or more secular ones? How far apart they are in terms of these kind of core beliefs for organizing societies. Uh, that's what I call ideological distance. And I, I believe that the farther leaders are apart in terms of um, the, the, the degree of ideological uh, differences, and the more dissimilar they are, the more likely they are to see one another as profound threats. Uh, and, and this threat perception works in two ways. Uh, the first is uh, assessment of one another's intentions. What do others intend to do? And the more I believe that the more dissimilar groups are, leaders are in terms of their defining ideological principles, the more likely they are to assume the worst about one another's intentions. They're just going to assume that they are hostile, uh, even if they're cooperate, even if ideological rivals are currently cooperating. Uh, they're likely to assume that that cooperation is is uh, going to be fleeting, and in the long run, you're going to have uh, tensions between them. And the other way in which ideological differences uh, promote threat or generate threat uh, has to do with domestic interests. Uh, leaders who are dedicated to uh, very different ideological principles will, will look at one another as subversive threats. And what I mean by that is they'll believe that the existence of the other is likely to, to stir up revolutionary passions and, uh, and tendencies and forces in their own society. So when you're dedicated to very different principles, you know, State A will fear that State B will uh, encourage revolution in, in their own society. And so they'll, they'll not only be concerned about the international intentions, but also a domestic dimension of threat. And when you add these these things up, uh, when you assume the worst about one another's intentions, and when you assume uh, or you believe that uh, groups are going to subvert the domestic institutions and system, uh, you're, that's, that's a recipe for very high threat perceptions. And conversely, on the other end, uh, leaders that are dedicated to similar ideological beliefs uh, tend to have the opposite uh, phenomenon. They tend to give one another the benefit of the doubt in terms of their intentions, that you know, and they look at one another as supports for their domestic interests. So the success of ideological allies abroad will tend to be a benefit to domestic interests at home because people say, look, these ideological principles work elsewhere. They can work at home. So you add those two things up, and ideological allies tend to look at one another as, as fairly low threats. Uh, so the result of this is that different ideological groups can look at the same exact evidence uh, and reach very different conclusions. Uh, and this really played itself um, out of my book. Uh, I, I looked at that quite a bit. Is different ideological groups in Muslim-majority countries looked at the exact same power, the exact same policies, 
by the United States, and they reach pretty different conclusions. Uh, highly illiberal groups tend to assume the worst about American interests and look at them as, a, as corrosive on their domestic beliefs, and uh, more liberal groups tend to give the U.S. more the benefit of the doubt in terms of U.S. intentions and also uh, look at the U.S. sometimes as a support for their domestic interests. Uh, you also, uh, the other variable uh, that I look at is, so the first variable is ideological distance, which you look, try to get a sense of how far apart different groups are in terms of their degrees of similarities and differences in terms of their ideological principles. The other variable is what I call uh, ideological polarity. And what I mean is, the if you look at a particular system like the Middle East, uh, the, the number of distinct ideological groupings that are present in a particular system. So if you go back to, let's say, 1930s Europe, you clearly had three rival ideological groups. You had fascism uh, in Nazi Germany and, and Italy. You had communism, Soviet Union, but you also had liberal countries, um, Britain and France. So three ideological groupings. Uh, you have a similar situation uh, last 30 years or so in the Middle East. We have Islamists, um, secular, what I call secular authoritarians, and also more liberal groups. And I, and no one has really looked at this before. People have studied ideologies, but I, I think that I argue that systems with two main ideological belief systems, let's say liberals versus fascists or liberals versus communists during the Cold War, are very different when you uh, compared to groupings that have three or more uh, systems, and this needs to be taken into account uh, in terms of uh, things like alliance formation, which I talk a lot about in the book, and and uh, whether aggressive strategies or more accommodating strategies are going to be more likely, or excuse me, more effective. And finally, you asked about some uh, methods. Uh, the main methods I use to... Uh, to test my test my hypotheses, I look at what are called in literature process tracing, which you, you try to get inside actors' heads. You know what are they what are leaders saying at the time that they make a decision? So you you try to say you look at a particular decision. How did leaders justify it? What did they say was the cause of threat? What did they say was the cause of a particular action? Uh, and and so and that's a fairly reliable method of uh, of trying to understand why actors make certain decisions. You know, you you look at hopefully private documents. Those aren't those aren't too available uh, for many Middle Eastern countries. But uh, at a minimum, you look at public uh, statements. What are what are they saying as to why they did what they did when they did it? And the other method is is what's uh, called longitudinal longitudinal analysis, and that, and that basically looks at the timing of things. When when did things change? Uh, if leaders are making or breaking an alliance, if leaders are clearly more fearful or less fearful, what was happening at that time? What were they reacting to? What was the thing that preceded it uh, that led to a change in fairly uh, important outcomes? And that uh, leaders with uh, significant uh, differences and distance between their ideologies will have a tendency to assume the worst about the other. Do you think uh, that can end up being a self-fulfilling prophecy? I do. Uh, 
that is one of the things with uh, idea-based or ideological-based variables is frequently they are self-fulfilling. If you believe someone is hostile, uh, if a state believes that, that uh, another country is hostile because of the principles, it's go- that group and that state is most likely to adopt policies that ensure such an outcome. Uh, so it, in many ways, it, it's circular, and it's hard to break break that vicious uh, cycle. Because even if you went to leaders uh, and said, well, you know, you're probably, this is a self-fulfilling action, you're, you're caught in a vicious circle here, uh, leaders tend to be so ingrained in, in the belief that ideolo- ideological rivals intend them harm, it, it's hard to break out of that cycle. So, you know, if you look at... Uh, U.S.-Iranian uh, Iranian relations, uh, for example, you frequently use, you know, one some people describe as sort of, of a teeter-totter that you know when one group seems ready to accommodate, the other tends not to be because they can't believe that the accommodation, the the outreach is is genuine, uh, and vice versa. So you rarely get when you're dealing with um, fierce ideological rivals. Um, very rarely do you get into a, a situation in which both tend to discount ideologies at the same time, and and you need both uh, doing it at the same time. But that that's a very that's very hard to do. Talking about Iran, uh, in the book you say that American power and policies were not the root source of U.S. Iranian enmity. Can you talk about what you feel are the more fundamental basis of the U.S. and Iranian perception and policy towards each other? Sure. Uh, I, I believe that it's uh, due significantly to the profound ideological differences uh, dividing, dividing the, the leaders in the two countries. Uh, and in, in the Iran- case, the Iranian chapter that I look at in the book, uh, it's a good taste for my argument because from 1997 to 2005, uh, Iranian leadership circles were divided into two ideological uh, groups, two ideological competitors. These groups are usually called uh, reformers, and they controlled the presidency from 97 to 2001 and parliament from 2000 to 2004. And the other one is ideological conservatives. Now, it, if my argument is correct, it, then different ideological groups in the same country and at the same time will have very different threat perceptions and consequent policies towards other states, because what's driving their behavior is ideological distances. So if ideological groups vary within Iran, for example, uh, the ideological distance with other countries like the U.S. is, is going to... Um, vary a lot, and that should matter to my argument. But the other main argument is, uh, you know, the competing argument to mine, at least the main competing argument, is that, well, it's really American power and policies that are driving enmity. And if that argument is correct, then this different ideological groups in the same country at the same time should have fairly similar threat perceptions, because from all actors within Iran, American policies and power are the same. You know, American power is constant for everybody in Iran. American policies are constant for everyone in Iran. So if it's power and policies that are driving things, uh, then uh, Iranian conservatives and reformers should view things pretty much the same. But if it's ideologies, then you should get very different um, threat perceptions and therefore very different security policies. 
And I found this to, uh, to be the case. Now, there's some things which American power was driving things. You know, most most people in the Middle East, Nishan and Iran, most most people are, are fairly uh, hostile to America's policies with Israel. Uh, most were fairly hostile to uh, the U.S. and um, attack of Iraq in 2003. But uh, back to Iran, uh, on very important security issues, such as the development of Iranian nuclear weapons, uh, support given to the U.S. in the war in Afghanistan and to a lesser extent Iraq, there were significant factional variations. So, so Iranian conservatives and Iranian reformers had very different reactions on these issues. So take nuclear weapons, for example. I, I believe that the, the best chance of resolving the nuclear issue from the American point of view lies in Iranian domestic politics. The more liberal the group, so Iranian reformers were, were significantly more liberal than Iranian conservatives. The more liberal the group, the lower the threat of the U.S., and therefore the lower the need to develop uh, or acquire nuclear weapons. Iranian conservatives, who, who look, at, look at the U.S. as an inevitable threat, assume the worst about American tensions, view the U.S. as a powerful, subversive threat that's, that's, that's trying to overthrow the Iranian regime and undermine, quote-unquote, you know, Islamic culture, uh, it's very unlikely that they're not going to develop nuclear weapons because they see the threat is so high. If the threat is so high, states tend to be willing to do anything to acquire the power to offset that threat. Uh, reformers viewed the U.S. as a much lower threat, and therefore they, they seem to be willing to do a deal on the nuclear question. If you go back to uh, 2000, uh, in the early 2000s, uh, the reformers led by President Hatami, um, they stopped enrichment, uh, uranium enrichment, uh, and they offered, uh, um, they spearheaded the offer of what was called a grand bargain to the United States, where they offered uh, a compromise that were highly favorable to the U.S. on a host of issues, including the nuclear issue in exchange for things like lifting uh, sanctions and uh, normalizations of relations with Iran. So, you know, just to sum up, when you see this variation on key issues, uh, development of nuclear weapons, uh, aiding the U.S. in Afghanistan, general views of the U.S. in terms of how, how great a threat there are, yeah, the U.S. is, it, it can't. This can't be explained by U.S. power and policies. It has to be explained by something that that varies. And I believe what varied in in this case was the ideological beliefs of different rulers uh, in Iran from 1997 to, to 2005. The title of your book and obviously the subject matter uh, discussed brings to mind uh, Samuel Huntington's well-known work. Clash of Civilizations. What do you feel are the uh, major differences and similarities between your analysis and his? Well, I, yes, I, I was a, a piggyback off of um, Huntington's title. Uh, well, he's looking at, uh, to be simplistic, he's looking at the Clash of Civilizations. I'm looking at the Clash of Ideologies. And what I mean by that, Huntington defined civilization uh, basically in religious terms, uh, that he said a civilization was the highest cultural grouping uh, that, that people have, that humans have, and 
and he most frequently defined civilization by religion. And and so to Huntington, uh, a, a clash between uh, Western Christian liberal groups with with Muslims because they represent different civilizations uh, is inevitable. So we agree, and I, I agree that uh, that what's driving international relations to an important extent is identity. The, these these ideational uh, variables. He thinks it's civilization. What where we disagree is what is that variable? He, to him, it's civilization. To me, it's ideology. And what do I mean by that? You know, Muslims, people who profess the Muslim faith, can be dedicated to very different ideological beliefs. What is their method of political representation? Do they believe in democracy or not? Do they believe in uh, minority rights or not? Do they believe in? Uh, do they have theocratic values or not? So, Muslim. You know, People can be within the same civilization, meaning Muslim, but they can ha- have very different ideological beliefs, liberal versus illiberal, uh, to use a kind of a wide category for, for my analysis. And if, if I'm right, then you should expect, again, different ideological groups within Muslim-majority countries having very different views and policies towards the U.S., where uh, Huntington, I believe... Uh, asserts that it's it's much broader. It's a civilizational identity uh, that is that is driving things. So it doesn't. So whether or not someone is a liberal or illiberal Muslim doesn't matter. It's whether or not they're Muslim is the is the key thing. And, and I I take a different approach to that. Earlier, when you were discussing ideological polarity, you mentioned three uh, three groups. And how by having three as opposed to two, the issue of alliances really comes into play. Could you talk about uh, what you found to be the strongest alliances that have formed between the three groups you mentioned? Sure. Well, the most polarity, ideological polarity uh, affected two things. Uh, One was the ability uh, or what strategies were most effective in exporting ideological beliefs. And the other was a polarity-affected alliance formation. And here's what I mean by that. One of the main uh, puzzles in the international relations literature for people who take ideologies seriously, like I do, is why do states that are dedicated to very different ideological principles ally? You know, there's been many examples throughout history where you know, fierce ideological rivals come together for security cooperation. And the, and the dominant response to that is, well, when states face a serious threat uh, to their security, they really don't care about ideology, uh, and so those put put that aside in order to uh, best protect their security. Uh, you know, this is what um, realist, uh, so-called realist international relations theories assert that ideologies just aren't important when push comes to shove when when states face a major security threat. But what I what I look at is there's something to that, uh, the, the realist argument, uh, but it, it doesn't take into account this ideological polarity variable or the number of great, the number of distinct rival ideological beliefs that are, that are present in a particular system. When there are three or more ideological groups in a particular system, it actually becomes much easier for ideological enemies to ally partly or to a significant degree 
for ideological reasons. So it isn't. You know, so on one hand, ideology doesn't matter. Ideological enemies are are aligned. But I found this paradoxical fi- uh, finding that it was actually due to a to a particular ideological configuration. And what do I mean here? If you have three ideological groups in the Middle East, we said you know, liberal groups uh, or liberalizing groups, secular authoritarians like Saddam Hussein's Iraq or Assad's Syria, uh, and Islamists like uh, Iran. When you have three groups, it's easier, it, it opens up the possibility that two ideological enemies will ally in order to combat a shared ideological rival. So it could be shared ideological enmity to a third group that is really responsible or, or to a significant degree responsible for an alliance between ideological enemies. And uh, I found this in, in the two cases I, I looked at that um, examined alliances among ideological enemies. I, I found this this logic of allying against the third ideological group uh, to be a, a major cause of alliance formation. And those two alliances were uh, the Syrian-Iranian uh, alliance uh, from that began in, in 1979 and the U.S.-Saudi alliance. Uh, the the uh, Syrian-Iranian alliance, uh, w- ideologies played a, a significant, paradoxically played a major uh, role in this because uh, a major impetus behind it was to ally against a shared ideological rival, which was Israel. And how do we know ideologies were uh, important? Well, I go into this, try to go into this quite a bit. But if you look at uh, what happened after, or if you look at before the Iranian Revolution, 79 versus after, there was a major re- major shift in alliance patterns. Before the Iranian Revolution, uh, Iran was, was fairly... Uh, uh, sympathetic or, or friendly w- with Israel and uh, fairly um, hostile to Syria. After the revolution, though, you had a real realignment of alliances, where Israel, or excuse me, uh, Iran now became a mortal enemy of Israel, uh, and because of that, shifted to an to an alliance. With Syria, even though they were ideological enemies, one was secular authoritarian, one was Islamist, they both shared a profound enmity with Israel. So it's a it's a paradox. On one hand, you have these ideological enemies having close relations, which seems to to violate uh, or work against the, the hypothesis of the book. But on the other hand, it was be- this alliance was due to the ideological changes initiated by the by the revolution in 79, and so it, it led to this the creation of the enmity with Israel from Iran's point of view, and therefore opened up the possibility uh, or the probability of an alliance with Syria. How do you feel that uh, the ideological differences between Syria and Iran could have been better used uh, if they were better understood by the U.S.? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, you, know, you know, my book had really has you know two big purposes. One is to try to figure out you know, how ideolo- how ideologies matter uh, in states' foreign policies uh, and and how much. So how and how much. 
Um, but the other main objective is um, is policy oriented. I, I try to tease out which foreign policies states should adopt in order to take advantages of the effects of ideologies. Uh, and my recommendations are geared to U.S. Uh, interests in, in particular. <coughs> Excuse me. I believe uh, in, the, in the Syrian-Iranian case that, at least in the Bush, uh, George W. Bush administration, a real opportunity was missed. Because ideological alliances between ideological enemies are not like other types of alliances. Uh, they're at the same time partners and, uh, and enemies. And so forces may bring these states together. Uh, necessity may dictate that uh, Syria and Iran ally in, in order to uh, address various common interests. But that doesn't mean <clears throat> excuse me, that the frictions created by their ideological differences are eliminated. They're still there, bubbling beneath the surface. Uh, and if states can take advantage of this, if states recognize that the, there are these latent at a minimum, latent hostilities among ideological enemies, and external power, like the United States, uh, can try to take advantage of those differences to wedge them apart, to divide a hostile coalition that's comprised of ideological enemies. And this was, uh, the U.S. Is a, has had a long-standing interest in trying to weaken uh, the Syrian-Iranian uh, alliance. And ideologies provided an opportunity for that to happen. So this is where being too realist, saying ideologies don't matter, uh, causes states to, uh, to miss a, an opportunity to advance their security. Uh, the Bush administration uh, was no exception to this interest in trying to, to wedge apart Syria and Iran, but they didn't take advantage of it. Now, now the ir- irony is they didn't take advantage of it not because they were realists, not because they didn't believe... Uh, that not because they believe that ideologies don't matter, is because they, but conversely they went the other way. The problem is that they went they were too ideological, and they insisted that only a full blown ideological revolution in either Syria or Iran was necessary in order to uh, in, in order to, draw, to end enmity with them. I think if they had you know been a little less dogmatic. Uh, in terms of what they insisted upon, the, uh, if, they, if they didn't insist on a full-blown ideological revolution in both these countries in order to end America's hostilities, without going the other way and saying ideologies don't matter, instead of arriving at a middle position saying we we believe that these differences between Syria and Iran are important, uh, it's just not that they're illiberal. That was another problem in the Bush administration. They, they tended to put, paint everyone with the same brush. Well, they're illiberal. Syria and Iran are clearly illiberal, but they're different types of illiberal. Uh, they, so that, that's where the polarity variable comes in. It isn't just liberal versus illiberal. It's, it could be liberal versus different types. So secular authoritarian illiberalism is very different than Islamist or theocratic illiberalism. And these differences, yet they, uh, you know, both Syria and Iran were hostile to the U.S. because of ideological differences. But Syria and Iran were also hostile to one another because of ideological differences. And I believe that if the U.S. had taken more, uh, under the Bush administration, if the U.S. had taken more accommodating actions towards the lesser of two threats, which I think is was Syria, uh, this would have allowed the ideological differences um, 
dividing Syria and Iran to bubble to the surface and ha- and be more determined of their relations and you know wedge them apart. And uh, in support of this, if you go back uh, go back in time a little bit, this is exactly what uh, the Clinton administration and the, the George H. W. Bush administration did. They were much more accommodating. Uh, with Syria in a number of uh, ways, diplomatic, um, economic, um, pushing for a peace treaty uh, with Israel. And at these times is when uh, Syrian-Iranian relations uh, uh, suffered the most. So, uh, again, it wasn't because it was a realist. It was taking taking advantage of the effects of ideologies. So in this way, uh, yeah, being too ideological can hurt your interests. Being saying, "Well, there's no differences between Syria and Iran because they're just illiberal," that can be defeating of your interest. Just as saying, "Well, ideologies don't really matter to international relations, so we're not we're not going to be bothered with them." That can that is also not conducive to maximizing states' interests. It's the middle middle ground where you try to take into account not only are they illiberal but different types of illiberals. How would, uh, what would you say is the sort of best way or how would you go about finding the sort of middle ground, the threshold or the, you know, what seems to be a very fine line between overestimating and underestimating the importance that ideology will have in a particular foreign policy situation? Yeah, that's, yeah, you know, it's a hard question. Uh, it, it is, uh, in some ways, uh, a fine line. I, and these things, I think, just have to be evaluated on a, on a case-by-case basis. Um, but you know, one thing that I think, even if it's hard to exactly find that line, it's it's at a minimum wise advice to avoid the two extremes, and that's the easiest to do. And but people don't do it. <laughs> so even if it's not, uh, even if the prescriptions I'm talking about are right now aren't, you know, fine grain, perhaps uh, the fact that you know the Bush administration painted everyone with a very broad ideological brush, and the fact that many people, uh, including the Obama administration. Uh, at least for the first couple of years in office, uh, went the other way and said ideologies really don't matter. We tend to oscillate, at least in the last 10 years ago, between these two extremes. Uh, so, you know, to avoid those uh, would be a major advance for U.S. interests, uh, even if it's, if it's difficult to say, uh, to, to fine-tune things in the middle, you know, when are ideological enemies likely to come together, or, or when are they not? That that's very hard to do. You know, in other words, what is the threshold? If ideological differences create di- barriers to alignment, but sometimes ideological enemies do ally, you know, what's that threshold? Well, that's that's very hard hard to determine. Uh, but what I want to say is that there is a threshold. You know, it, it, it is hard for ideological enemies to come together, and those frictions are going to remain in place, even if they are temporary. Even if ideological enemies are temporarily forced together, and 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 why statesmen, even if it's hard to identify the threshold, know that it's out there and will try to find it um, by by various accommodating policies towards the lesser of 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 threats
How do you think uh, going forward in Syria with the current uprisings, how do you think that will affect the uh, sort of ideological analysis and uh, our, both our policies towards Syria and their uh, future relationship with Iran? Well, uh, you know that's a, that's a hard question because we're not really not sure what's what's going to happen. Uh, is Assad going to fall? Uh, if so, uh, who's go- who's going to take his place? Uh, you know what we do know, just looking at the Arab Spring uh, in large, and then I'll try to narrow it down to Syria. Is that uh, ideological outcomes matter a lot to states' security? I, I think we found that out, <clears throat> and in ways which uh, support my argument uh, when I talked at the beginning of, of this discussion, we said one way in which ideological differences shape leaders' threat perceptions is by, by fear of subversion, meaning that if, some, if an ideological rival is successful abroad, it's likely to uh, cause trouble uh, in other countries, or likely to spread to other countries. So if I'm a, in State A and I, and I see an ideological enemy uh, succeeding, I'm going to worry that 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 enemy is going to provide an example that is going to stir up trouble at home, uh, stir up similar, uh, uh, in, in, uh, be an ideological inspiration in my own country. And I think we saw this uh, with the Arab Spring, where you saw revolutions spreading and you saw countries uh, such as Saudi Arabia uh, and even outside the Middle East, like Russia, uh, very fearful of what's going to, you know, what's happening elsewhere and what's called in the literature demonstration effects, that if one ideological group demonstrates its success elsewhere, other countries are worried that that was going to happen in their own country. And you, uh, and the, so that's one way in which the Arab Spring is, is mattered to state security. Uh, the other way is I, I think people realize, as leaders realize, that it's going to matter a lot for them which ideological groups govern in particular countries, uh, so it isn't so. St- leaders tend to believe that states' foreign policies are just not a product of uh, permanent factors like geography or or power, but who governs and the principles of who governs matters a lot, and and that's why you know you've seen Saudi Arabia bolstering, uh, uh, trying to support. Uh, some groups that they don't want to see undergo a revolution. You see Iran and the U.S. and Turkey. You know these people are states are competing in order to control which ideological groups uh, come out on on top uh, in the in this struggle across uh, much of the Arab world. And so I think that's you know we're seeing that. In, in Syria, uh, that uh, Iran doesn't want to see uh, their ally uh, fall because the, even though Assad is a secular authoritarian regime, uh, if, a, if, if Syria liberalizes or if Sunni Islamists come into power, uh, Iran is likely to have much less influence. And the same reason, that's why I think you see Turkey su- supporting revolutions in Egypt and, and in Syria because uh, the creation of like regimes, of similar regimes, is likely to meaning democratic countries that have liberal Islamists in power, like Turkey does, is going to benefit uh, their power. The problem that the U- the U.S. has uh, in in the Syria case, right? I think 
gets back to the ideological polarity issue. You're just not talking about two types of ideological beliefs. If you're just talking about two, if it was just say you know back uh, you know, back in Europe in the in the during the Cold War, let's say liberal democratic versus communist, it's it's a lot easier to support revolution if you're either the Soviet Union or the United States because you're more confident that if one ideological group goes down, the competitor, which will be your own, is is going to win. But when you're dealing with three or more, it it adds a a very different dynamic because let's if the U.S. supported the overthrow of the Syrian regime, uh, or at least uh, you know they do support it sort of, but if they were more forceful in the support of the overthrow of the Assad regime, they're not guaranteed to get you know liberal Democrats on the other side. They're worried about the, this third ideological grouping could come in, which would be you know hardline Islamists that would be also fundamentally hostile. So. It's when you're dealing with three or more rival ideological groups contending for power in the same system, it becomes a little more tricky to promote revolution in other countries because you may topple the current government, but there's no guarantee that uh, that your uh, that your uh, co-ideologues, you know, the people you are sympathetic to ideologically, are going to come in on the other side. It could be another rival ideological belief, which in some ways could be more threatening. And I, I think that's what the U.S. is, is worried about uh, in Syria. Well, Mark, uh, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Uh, before I let you go, if you would, could you talk for a minute uh, about what projects you have coming up and what you're working on uh, in the future? Sure. Uh, I'm working on, on two different uh, projects. The one is uh, an extension uh, of this uh, of my argument uh, in this book and my previous book, which is called um, the Ideological Origins of Great Power Politics, and it has to do with when do ideological enemies ally? I talk a lot about it uh, uh, in both books, but it, the book actually gets to one, one of the questions you ask: you know, what is this this threshold? What exactly is um, ideological enemies have this this um, uh, they don't want to ally there are these forces against alignment but sometimes they do and I want to try to determine how strong do the forces for alignment tend to be before ideological enemies will will come together and I'm going to look at that in in several ways uh, cases that I call uh, tipping points You you look at two ideological rivals, and they resisted for a long time coming together. Forces are bringing them together, but they resist, they resist, they resist, and then they finally agree to alignment. Well, what was it that tipped them over uh, the top? Well, what was the the final impetus that was necessary? How strong did it have to be? And then what I call breaking points. Sometimes ideological enemies, even though they're being forced together by common security fears or, 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 or whatnot, they break apart. Why? Why does ideology all of a sudden win? And the final group of case studies uh, is what I call alliances that never were, uh, such as uh, the, you know, a Franco-Soviet alliance in the 1930s against Nazi Germany. Why is it when s- sometimes states face a common geo- geopolitical enemy, but they never ally because of ideologies? So if I look, at, uh, my hope is that by looking at those three types of cases, 
I'll be able to triangulate and just how what is the how strong is the the forces against alignment and how strong do the forces for alignment have to be before these barriers are overcome. So in other words, just try to get that fine-grained analysis uh, uh, that you asked me about a little earlier, which is very hard, but I'd like to try to um, zoom in on it. And the other book, um, which is completely different than this scholarship, but I've, I've written fairly extensively on it, is on the effects of global population aging. Uh, the world's great powers uh, are growing older at a fantastic rate. Uh, you know, U.S., China, uh, Russia, Br- uh, Britain, France, Germany, Japan, uh, aging very fast. And uh, I'd like to know, uh, you know what are the likely security, I'd like to explore what are the likely security effects created by this dynamic uh, for great power relations in general and for the U.S. in particular. Well, it sounds uh, very interesting. Hopefully, I'll get a chance to talk to you again uh, in the future when you when you publish. Uh, that would be terrific. Well, thank you again, Mark, for uh, taking the time to talk with me. That's been my pleasure, Carl. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. And thanks again to Dr. Haas for taking the time to talk about his new book, The Clash of Ideologies. You can follow New Books in Middle Eastern Studies on Twitter, where we are at New Books Mideast, and also on Facebook, as well as through our website, newbooksinmiddleeasternstudies.com, where you can find links to subscribe to our show. To send me your comments or to suggest an author or book for a future show, you can use the contact information located on our website. Also, if you enjoy the show, please consider taking a moment to rate and review it on iTunes, which will help more people find our shows. Thank you for listening.